0: These last, uh, over these last couple of years, I've, I've found myself in court more often than I really want to be. And you're sat there thinking, why is Stuart in court? Uh, yeah, I'll let you think about that for a minute. I was there as a, as a witness on behalf of some friends that came to our church from Iran. And I was, uh, I was asked to go and represent them and to speak about them. In, uh, in the court when they came to the tribunal, those that came to the, the court tribunals. And I found myself in court. It's a very interesting place, court. I'm really intrigued. The courts really, really intrigue me. They intrigue me because I've come to the conclusion whenever you walk into a courtroom, you're on trial. Well, no, I'm not. The plaintiff's on trial. The person being accused is on trial. But actually, everyone's on trial. Uh, in a courtroom, absolutely everyone's on trial. Let me tell you, the law is on trial in a courtroom. Is it fair or is it not? Uh, some, a couple that come to our mothers and toddlers. Yeah, you know, I have to be really careful with my illustrations. I don't think this will carry. Yeah, I'll just go with it anyway. Uh, <laughs> A couple that come to our mothers and toddlers, they have been trying to, uh, uh, have, have been adopting a child. It's been, it's ended up an utter disaster. Uh, not on their side, but, but on the other side. And, and the, the, the child's mother wanted the, the child back, and six months had passed, and papers had not been served, and things, have, things hadn't gone at all well. And they ended up in court last week before the judge. And at the end, the judge says, I can only do what the law allows me. I'm sorry I can't give you justice. Isn't that sad? It's that sad. It's part of, part of a legal system. The law doesn't always give justice. The law's on trial. Well, the barrister for the prosecution's on trial. Will they do a good job? Will they do a bad job? The barrister for the defense is on trial. Will they do a good job? Will they do a bad job? The person in the courtroom who's, who's the subject of everything that's going on, they're on trial. The witnesses that are called, they're on trial. Will they say something good? Will they say something bad? Will what they say is fair? Will what they say is true? Under cross-examination, will they bottle it? Will they remain faithful? Everyone, everyone's on trial. Now, let me take you to one of the most famous trials in the world. And one of the most accurate and well-recorded trials in ancient history. It's the trial of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we are, I want to look at this trial because I think it distills things. Uh, The important things become obvious, it reveals people's hearts and people's minds. And and we're walking into what is a courtroom. Uh, Jesus has been arrested. Uh, late at night, he's been dragged down to the, the house of the chief priest, and there he's before the chief priest, uh, and he's now in a courtroom, and you have this opportunity to come with me and sit in the courtroom. But as you watch and as you listen, remember, you're on trial. You're on trial. You may think Jesus is on trial? You may think, actually, it's not Jesus who's on trial, the high priests are on trial. No, no, you're on trial. What will you do with the evidence as presented? My first heading is very simple. This is very real. This is very real. This is the best recorded trial of, in ancient literature. Uh, it's recorded in all four Gospels, and all four Gospels, all four accounts of, uh, of Jesus' life and Jesus' trial Well, they all say the same thing, but they also say something slightly different. So, Mark is really the the story of Peter's, Peter's story. Uh, Mark is is Peter's record. Uh, That becomes obvious as you read the account here. And you read verse 54 of chapter 14, And Peter followed him. How do we know? Because it's Peter's story that Mark is telling Peter followed him into the courtyard. We know that John had access because Peter and John, John got Peter into the courtyard. So we know that John was there in person. We know that Peter was there in person. We know that that Luke uh, gathered together lots of witnesses and and compiled his. We know that Matthew recorded what he heard others saying. This is remarkable and it's authentic. It, It mentions in its authenticity, in th- te- yeah, I'll start again Authenticity That's the right word isn't it It mentions in its authenticity Slightly different things Well of course it does It's from slightly different viewpoints John saw it slightly different to Peter Peter was very aware of himself John was as self aware as Peter Luke had lots of people It was, compa- it was slightly different But it's very real The arrest and trial of Jesus is an utter disaster. It's an utter disaster. They had planned to wait until after the feast, the Passover feast. This was at the time of year when most people were in Jerusalem. Everyone wanted to be in Jerusalem. And everyone was really, really fanatical. At Passover, everyone wanted a fight at Passover. Everyone at Passover wanted to chuck the Romans out. Everyone wanted to battle. That's why they brought lots of extra Romans in. That's why Pontius that's why Pilate is there. He's there because there's usually a fight. At Passover, everyone's full of of spiritual fight and battle. It remembers the exit from from Egypt. It remembers rescue from slavery. These wretched Romans have got hold of us. and, and, And the whole of Jerusalem is just bubbling. Bubbling. Jesus walks into it. Well, he doesn't walk into it. He rides into it on a donkey. And if things weren't wound up enough, now Jerusalem is at boiling point. The high priests say, Let's let things calm down. Wait till Passover's finished, and then we'll deal with him. But actually, God's got another agenda. And God's agenda is very simple Jesus Christ dies at Passover. Judas sets things going. He appears, and he says to them, I'll hand him over. But it's got to be now. And they go, Yeah, okay, when you're ready. And so, on the very day, the very night before Passover, he appears in the mist and he says, I know where he'll be in a couple of hours' time. It's where he always goes. And they're pushed, their plans go out the window, and they start to run. They start to run to make sure that they can arrest Jesus Christ. But they've got a few problems about law and legalism and things like that. Who's going to try him? It's actually going to be three, two trials. Well, it's really hard to say because there's a civil trial and there's a religious trial and the civil trial is in three parts and the religious trial is in three parts. So there's kind of six trials. The problem is the religious trial They can't condemn him into death and get him out and hung. They've got to go to the civil authorities for that. So they've then got to have a civil trial. So they have a religious trial to condemn him. And then they've got to go and strong arm to get a civil trial and then get him actually executed. It's a mess. It's a mess. I want to just concentrate on part of the religious trial. We read that they're dragged before the high priest. First time. And they're dragged into his courtyard. We read it in verse 53. Before the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. Everyone's been woken up, dragged out of bed. And there they are, dragged into the courtyard. And there they are before the the high priest as part of the, the civil trial. The Sanhedrin is gathered. It's late at night. It's all wrong. You shouldn't try people at night, should you? Under the cover of darkness, it's just wrong. You should try them in the daytime when people are awake and know when it's going on. But they're trying him at night. They try him in secret first, and then they try him with all the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. It's all wrong. It's unjust. Who's defending him? Who's going to stand up for him? He has no defense, only accusers. And their mates, who are the jury. It's all wrong. The injustice is obvious. To everyone who reads it, to everyone who looks at this, it's, it's deeply, deeply unjust. It goes against the principles of justice set out by God. It goes out against the principles of natural justice. It's all wrong. It's all wrong. My first point is it's real. It's real. This is the real story of a real man who lived just over 2,000 years ago. It's not fantasy. It's not made up. It's a real story about a real man who walked on this earth. Christianity is about real things. Not about fantasy stories. It's about real people and real situations. It's not about myths and legends. It's about normal life, unremarkable life, unkind life at times, kind life at times, fair, unfair life. This is about a man who 2,000 years ago walked this earth. This is a story of how his life ended. The most remarkable man who ever lived. It's a real story. If you really begin to grasp that, you'll start to understand the Bible. This is about the Son of God in human flesh. This is about His end and how unfair it was. And it was unfair. And He allowed it to be unfair because He was taking your place. That's His claim. This is a real story. My second point is this is a very revealing story. A very revealing story. This is a, a trial And it's called, but it's not called with the aim of finding out the truth. This is a trial, and the design of the trial is that no matter what, Jesus dies. No matter what, Jesus dies. That's why they called it. That's why they're doing it in this way. That's the intent behind it. Fortunately the trials I've been involved with The intent has been to find out what is true But when you find a trial where the intent Is not to find out if something's true or not But to end up with someone imprisoned or dead Something's gone seriously wrong hasn't it? The chief priests, the whole Sanhedrin Were looking for evidence against Jesus Not for him Not evidence to weigh, but against him. Right from their beginning, they just want to get rid of him. They just want to put him to death. These are not impartial people. These are these are deeply, deeply biased people. Not impartial in any way, and they just want Jesus shut up and dead. Let's just kill him. We'll go through the proceeds. Yeah, all right. We'll have a trial. We'll have a couple of trials, we'll we'll make it at night so no one knows it's going on and causes problems. And then we'll confirm it in the daytime, then we'll drag him to Pilate, and then we'll get Pilate and we'll shove his arm as high up his back as we can get until he really hurts and he feels that if he doesn't do what we want, then he'll die as well, and then we'll get him to condemn him. As long as Jesus is dead, that's all I want. They had a problem because they're trying to do it and retain some kind of dignity. And as you read it, it's, it's an absolute farce. It's hysterical. They looked for witnesses, we're told. Verse 55. Against Jesus to put him to death. And they found none. Bit of a problem, isn't it? Never mind. They got some to bear false witness against him. But they couldn't agree They couldn't agree They couldn't agree with each other They couldn't agree with what he did, what he didn't do They couldn't agree with what he did right They couldn't agree with what he did wrong And then some who were watching this going on Utterly frustrated with everything that was happening They jumped up and went Well let me have a go I think I can do a better job of a false witness than you That's what happened it says they rose up, verse 57. They've been watching this. This is not at all fair. They've been watching this. And they go, well, I, I can do a better job than any of them. They jumped up. They said, right, okay, this is what we heard. They "Ah, this is what we heard. We heard him say, he will destroy this temple that has been made with hands and within three days and he will build another made without hands. But even then they didn't agree. The accusation against him was very simple. He was dishonoring the temple. That was the accusation. The accusation was that he dishonored the temple in Jerusalem. He dishonored God's house. And that that he he had threatened it. He had threatened God's house. And this is a very, very, very dangerous thing for a dirt poor carpenter with 12 mates to do but it's very dangerous isn't it it's quite farcical it's hysterical if it wasn't so sad it would be funny but even they couldn't agree and then then the high priest stood up verse 60 and he says do you have nothing to answer here these people testify against you. And he kept quiet. He kept quiet. The high priest jumps up. He's deeply frustrated with everything that's going on. The utter farce that surrounds this. Everything's an absolute disaster. And he stands up and he says, Come on, perjure yourself. Perjure yourself. Say something that'll, that'll get you convicted so that we can get rid of you. We can't get anyone to say anything against you. Say something so we can nail you to a tree. And he kept quiet. Not a word. Not a word. It's very revealing, isn't it? But here we have, let me suggest, a blueprint of people who, su- who reject Jesus. And it might be you. Remember, you're on trial here. It might be you. It goes like this very simply, I have an opinion, I don't like Jesus in any way. I've arrived at this opinion through my life and I don't want anything to do with him. I think Jesus is irrational, I think that he's unreasonable, I, I, just, I just, I don't want anything to do with him, I think he's wicked and evil and I'm just going to reject him. I, I, I've got good reason to reject him. Let me give you a few of my ideas on why, the, why I should reject him. Uh, and, and I'll reject him because um, uh, I, I don't like his view of marriage. Okay, so I don't, I don't like his view of marriage and I don't want anything to do with someone who has his, his view of marriage. I, I don't like his view of women. I don't like his view of women at all. I don't like how he treats them. You know, there was one day and there was a woman and, and she, she came in and she wanted something. And, and he said, well, you know, uh, should I really give you anything? And she goes, even the dogs get something from under a table. Give me a little bit of something. And he agreed. And I don't like how he treats women. He treats them appallingly. I, I don't like, I don't like what he does. I don't like what he says. I don't like what he says about treating the poor. I think, it's, I think it'll be a chaotic society. I don't think I, I agree with what he says about treating enemies and being gracious to them. I don't like that. I don't like what he says about rich people and how they should use their money. I don't like that. I like quite—I like my money. I don't want anyone else to have an opinion on my money. I don't want anyone to have an opinion upon my marriage. I don't want anyone to have an opinion on who my friends are and who my enemies are or, I don't want anyone to have any opinions on me. I just don't like Jesus at all. I don't like him. And I I don't want anything to do with him. All the while, they've never really actually read what Jesus said. They've never read how he treated women and how they treated him. He loved them, they loved him. In fact, most remarkably... The first people he saw came to, appeared to on purpose after he was risen from the dead was to women. Remarkable. And marriage. That he wouldn't know best who created men and women. Well, and that he doesn't know what's best for our lives and what's best to give us health. What's best to keep us sane? What's best to keep us near to God? What's best to make society function? Not really interested in the evidence. It's just my prejudice. Is that you? Lots of people have an opinion on the Bible and have never actually read it. And the funny thing is, Jesus doesn't speak to them. Why should he? If you come with that opinion, why should he speak to you? Why should he speak to you? If your opinion is already you don't want anything to do with him, why should he speak to you at all? And so there are people, you'll, you'll meet them, they'll come into the church, and they'll hear the wonderful good news of Jesus Christ, and they'll go out and they'll say, He never spoke to me? Well, why would he? Why would he? If you've already made your mind up, why would he listen? Why would he speak to you? Why would he reveal himself to the proud? We're told he reveals himself to the humble, to the contrite in heart. My third point, revolutionary. Revolutionary. The trial isn't going well. The witnesses are incompetent. They're inept. The high priest must act. He jumps up. He demands, Jesus, perjure yourself, Jesus. Do you have nothing to say? Jesus keeps quiet. And then he asks a question. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The chief priest, he couldn't get his coat off fast enough. There he was, he was convinced he's ripping his coat off, he's ripping it into pieces, showing how upset he is, showing how terrible what Jesus has said, was being said, and he rips it up, he rips it up in front of them. This is appalling, this is blasphemy. This is blasphemy. He's claiming to be one with God. Blasphemy. He's claiming to be the one the prophets spoke about blasphemy he's speaking he's claiming that one day he'll appear and judge the world blasphemy blasphemy do we need any evidence we're done nail him to the tree why do we need any more witnesses Oh, that's a good question that's a good question Why do I need any more witnesses, he says. Well, because if Jesus is who he says he is, he's your eternal judge, Mr. High Priest. And if he is who he says he is, he's the precious son of God, and you're going to nail him to a tree, Mr. High Priest. And if who he says he is, Here's the author and the answer to life, Mr. High Priest. So you should maybe have a look at a few more witnesses. Maybe in the daytime. Let me suggest a few. Let me suggest a few more witnesses. Maybe you could go out into the fields outside Jerusalem and go and find some of the shepherds who 30-something years ago saw angels descending and singing the praise of the birth of the Son of God. They'll still be alive, some of them. They'll be old men, yes, but they'll be there. Maybe speak to one of the angels who spoke of Micah's promise that the king would be born in Bethlehem. Maybe you could go and find this man's mother and you can ask her, Was Isaiah right? Did a virgin conceive? She's there. In fact, in a few hours, she'll be stood under his cross. She's not hard to find. Maybe you'll go and speak to her. Mary, tell me about him. Maybe you could go to the crowds that saw him come into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and confirmed the arrival of a king, humble and riding on a donkey. They're all through Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Go and ask them, is he the king? Is he the king? Maybe you could go and find one of the 5,000 plus who sat on a mountain, having not eaten for at least a day and a half, and where they saw him take five loaves and two fish and and break them, 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 and hand them out again and again and again and again until they'd all stuffed themselves full and then fill another 12 baskets. Maybe you could ask them. Maybe you could ask them what they thought of him. Maybe you could ask the man who had laid by the pool of Bethesda and hadn't been able to walk, who stood up and walked. Maybe you could ask those lads who went and broke into some poor person's house and dropped their mate down through the roof their paralyzed friend. Maybe you could find them. They're not far away. And the paralyzed friend who laid on the floor, unable to walk for many years, stood up and walked. Maybe you could ask him. Maybe you could ask the blind who saw and the deaf who heard. Maybe you could find... Well, you couldn't because you beheaded John the Baptist. But you could find his disciples, James and John and Peter who followed him before before they followed Jesus and saw Jesus Christ baptized and saw a dove descend upon him and heard an angel from heaven declaring, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Maybe you'd listen to them. Maybe you'd listen to them. Maybe you'd listen to Jeremiah who said that the end of the Messiah would be in a court Of a murderous plot. Well, is Jesus Christ the Savior of the world? Is He who He claims to be? Is He the Son of God? Is He man's only hope for salvation? Well, you could ask all those people, but you don't need to stop there. You can open your history books and you can keep asking. John Huss, a preacher, Was he the son of God, the eternal Messiah? Martin Luther, John Calvin, William Williams, Daniel Rowlands? Maybe you could just walk around this church if you're not sure. You're not sure if Jesus really is the son of God? Maybe just walk around the church and talk to someone. I find it helps. It's hard work. I know church is hard work. I know it is. And I know talking to people in church is hard work, but actually people in church are really quite interesting people. And if you ask them the right questions, it's great to be with them. And maybe you could ask a question. Do you think Jesus Christ is who he claims to be? And if so, why? Maybe you could ask me. And I would tell you. I would tell you about my life, not all of it, Because I don't want you to know all of it. But I'll tell you about how I brought up in a Christian home and just rejected him. Well, I think he lived, but he wasn't important. I'll tell you how for many years I turned my back on him. I'll tell you how up until the age of 18, I really liked going to church because that's where my friends were, but didn't want anything to do with Jesus Christ at all. i could tell you about that. I could tell you about how, me got, how he got me onto the horn of a dilemma. How he, how he pronged me so I couldn't sit on the fence and I had to make a decision to follow Christ or to follow a very pretty young girl. It was a problem for an 18-year-old boy. How he asked me Who do you really love? And who will save you? I could tell you. I could tell you. I don't make many right decisions. But I made one right one. To follow Jesus Christ. The Saviour of the world. And he's never left me. And he's never forsaken me. He is who he says he is. And through many years... He never left me or forsook me. And I sat there and he never left me or forsook me. And I worked in fields and he never left me or forsook me. And I became the pastor of a church and he never left me or forsook me. And I became a pastor of a slightly bigger church with a few more problems and he never left me or forsook me. And I'm now 54 years old and he's never left me or forsaken me. And I look forward to tomorrow in the belief that he'll never leave me or forsake me because he's the savior of the world. Do you know him? I commend him to you.